also turn with me to the book of Malachi. Um, quick, uh, as you guys turn there, it's the very last book of the Old Testament. Really easy. Um, use your table of contents if needed, or find Matthew and just turn backward a couple of pages. But that's where we're going to be is the book of Malachi. Um, I do want to mention um, one thing that's on me. I forgot to communicate this to Ryan. Uh, there will not be Sunday school next week. Um, we are actually switching the course now, uh, and we're going to be doing a course in two weeks. I'll have more information for you next week on uh, sharing the good news about Jesus. Just practically, how do you do that? So we'll be doing that at 920. More details to come next week. I'm going to take a week off to prepare for that. Um, so, um, as you turn to uh, Malachi, I want you in Malachi because we're going to be there. Uh, we've been doing this series on the minor prophets, and this is the last. There's 12 minor prophets, 12 short prophet books at the end of the Old Testament. We've done one message on each book. Someday we will, uh, Lord willing, circle back and dig into each one with great depth and detail. Um, but this morning we're going to be concluding by going through Malachi. Next week we're going to start a series on the book of Acts. And that series, um, they'll be interspersed with some other sermons, uh, but that will probably take us through the spring. So I, I will have, Lord willing, a sermon card for you next week. It'll probably be on our website or on our uh, social media channels so you know all the upcoming sermons for the fall so that you can read ahead. But uh, if you want a preview, if you, just, if you read Acts chapter 1, we won't hit the whole chapter next week, but Acts chapter 1 is where we'll be next week. Um, but now that you're in Malachi, I hope you found it at this point. I'm not going to read this. It's a short book, and you think it's like three pages. Usually he reads it if it's three pages, but it's prose. Most of these have been poetry, and so like the lines are like a quarter of the line, quarter of the page. If I read this, like that looks like three to four pages, but it's like nine to twelve. So I'm not going to read the whole book this morning. Um, that being said, we are going to be camped out there for a while. And uh, I hope that some of you did read the book. It doesn't take that long um, to read. And uh, I would encourage you to read it this week if you haven't. Um, do you ever feel like you're going through the motions, though? I mean, on one hand, of course you do. You have your moments, uh, and perhaps you have more of them than you care to admit. Malachi is a book that's, I think, written to people going through the motions of life, uh, going through the motions of their faith, their religiosity, written to a people who should have hope and purpose and joy and a cause, but they don't. At least most of them don't. How do you live when you can't find purpose? Malachi explores the, the different ways our purposelessness uh, came on a group of people that lived a long time ago. And it challenges us that the faithful in waiting will find reward. The faithful in waiting will find reward. And Malachi unpacks this in seven different, we'll call them, Q&As, um, for lack of a better term, but, so I don't have to use a big, big technical vocab term. Seven different Q&As, and then a, a final charge. That's kind of how his book breaks up, and so that's kind of how we'll follow along with it this morning. But before we dig in, and this is going to be real quick, I do want to give you some brief background on Malachi. 
Um, so we look at verse 1, chapter 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. We've given a little bit of background each message in the series. At this point, I can do this very quickly. But we have no other record of Malachi. His name means my messenger, or it means my angel. You know that an angel is just a word that means messenger? Um, so some people think that Malachi isn't really a name, but it's just kind of like an anonymous description of a prophet. But there really aren't a lot of great reasons to think it wasn't his name. Um, but that's about all we've got on him. His message is from the Lord, from Yahweh, the God of creation. And that message is to Israel, that is, to God's chosen people. Now, the setting of the book isn't explicitly stated in the book, but there's enough clues within the book, which I won't bog you down with, to know the situation. And there's even a clue outside the book. In the books of the minor prophets, generally, some people would argue maybe not perfectly, but generally go in chronological order. So the oldest ones are at the, the start, and the um, newest ones are at the end. And, and so that suggests that the book that we're dealing with here, Malachi, it deals with things that happened after everything else we've talked about in this series. The last books we looked at took place during the time of the Persian Empire, or the Archaemenid Empire, if you prefer. The Jewish people, brief recap, and this is good to uh, keep this in mind, the Jewish people had divided into two kingdoms uh, of a civil war, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The Assyrian Empire destroyed the northern kingdom and took the citizens captive in 722 B.C. The Babylonian Empire overtook the Assyrians and eventually destroyed the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. The uh, Medo-Persian or the Archetimid uh, Empire overtook the Babylonians and eventually repatriated many Jews to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple there. And that temple was rebuilt in 516 B.C. And the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah deal with that time frame. So that's where we are. And if we go from what we know about those books, we might be able to set the stage a bit emotionally. We have the descendants of the Israelites who are supposed to be God's people living under a foreign power, politically impotent. Life is centered again around the temple in Jerusalem. That's a good thing, but the temple is merely a shadow of the glory of the temple that King Solomon had built centuries ago. And while Persian control meant that the Jews did not have to worry too much about external military threats, there are plenty of hints in this book and some of the other books we've looked at that these periods often were marked by economic struggles due to drought, blight, and agricultural pests. And at the same time, there's there's good reason to think that the government, both locally in Jerusalem, in Judea, and far away, the Persian capital of Susa, was economically oppressive against the subjects. Reading Malachi through a lens like that, we might understand then how Old Testament scholar Wilhelm van Gemmeren summarizes the state of things. He writes, the restoration of which the prophets had spoken had not yet come. God had not shaken the nations. And the messianic kingdom had not yet been established. The Lord had not blessed his people as he had promised. The era of fulfillment had turned into a period of waiting. While waiting, some had exchanged their beliefs for the fast life. 
while others were cynical about the value of organized religion, God raised up Malachi to address the problems of cynicism, formalism, unfaithfulness, and questions about the benefits of godliness. If I could summarize it, I think they were people who were going through the motions of their religious identity. And some had gone so far as to all but abandon their religious identity. They would have said, oh yeah, we're Jews, but nothing about their lives really looked very Jewish. But again, Malachi's message challenges those individuals and it encourages the remaining faithful with the idea that the faithful in waiting will find reward. Like I said, the book is kind of broken up into seven uh, Q&As with kind of a final charge. And, and they're almost all, there's, there's one exception really, that's rephrased as questions and answers between God and those who would be his people. And each of them can make for a very practical, down-to-earth sermon, which is why if you've heard a sermon from the minor prophets and it wasn't Jonah, it was probably from Malachi. But I'm guessing you don't want seven sermons this morning. So I have to kind of blow through this really quickly. Um, and the first Q&A begins in chapter 1, verse 2, and it runs through verse 5, and it's sort of an overview concern. And so it's worth diving into a little bit more length than some of the other ones we're going to look at. The basic charge is laid out in the beginning of verse 2. Uh, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So what's going on? Well, the, the Israelites were supposed to be God's people, and God had demonstrated incredible love for them, but the people respond with incredulity. They do not believe that God has loved them. And while Malachi doesn't say why they feel that way, we can take a few guesses. For all the reasons we summarized in the introduction, life is hard. Things are not going particularly well. There is no obvious light at the end of the tunnel. And that just doesn't feel like love to them. And God's response is to remind his people where they came from. The Israelites were descendants of the man Israel, also known as Jacob. His father was Isaac. And Isaac had two sons. God promised to bring his special favor on that son Jacob, or Israel, but not on his twin brother Esau, who was also known as Edom. And that's not because Israel was better than Edom. It wasn't because Israel was smarter. It wasn't because Israel was more righteous. It wasn't because Israel was better looking. We're never told why God chooses Israel over Edom. But God is absolutely clear that it has nothing to do with how wonderful Israel was. God's will is ultimately inscrutable. It's mysterious. It's beyond our understanding. Now, like Israel, Edom's descendants became a nation, a people on the southern or southeastern border of Israel. And some of you remember the message we preached on Obadiah, a prophet who encouraged God's people that Edom would be destroyed because of their wickedness, and in particular, wickedness that they had committed against Israel. And now, many years later, God can point to Edom and say, look how devastated they've become. And what's more, God promises to completely and finally wipe Adam out, that there's no hope for what remains of them to rebuild the glory of their kingdom that they once had. And by all historical or anthropological accounts, the language, the culture, the religion, the heritage of Adam exists 
nowhere on the earth today. Now, your first thought might be, how is that comforting? How does that prove God's love for Israel? And the short answer, I think, is this. Israel had been pretty wicked itself. And it's clear that God still has a beef with them. That's what these next six Q&As are about. So when the Israelites question God's love, it's sort of like this. Imagine a wife. You can make it a husband if you want, but imagine a wife over the years who has become tired of her husband. She doesn't feel that spark anymore. And at first unconsciously, but then quite consciously, she begins to ignore him. She starts to do things that she knows irritates him. She just doesn't really mind so much. She doesn't really think about it. It's just not a part of her concern. It's not so much that she wants to hurt him. It's just she doesn't care. Over time, though, it grows, and she begins to gaslight him. She does things that she claims are for her husband, but are really for herself. And when he protests, she tells him, no, I know you love these things. You've always liked it when I do these things. You told me you wanted, to say, wanted me to say these things to you. Then over more time, she has an affair. But it doesn't stop with just one. She has an affair after an affair after an affair. Some flings are short-lived. Some last a long time. Sometimes she acts like she's still interested in her husband. Sometimes not. But either way, it's a lot of paramours. becomes extensive, this treachery, this faithlessness toward her husband. And before too long, her personality is a shell of what her husband remembers when he married her. And yet he stays. Now imagine that such a wife asked him in disbelief, how have you loved me? Wouldn't the husband be right to say, I'm still here, aren't I? I could have destroyed this marriage and, and divorced you in the courts. But I've refused to do that. I've, I've stayed because I've loved you. I know things aren't great right now. But I believe they can be. That, in a nutshell, is what's going on here. God is saying, you never did anything to make yourself worthy of being my people. That was on me. I chose you. In fact, you've actually gone out of your way to make yourself quite unworthy of being my people. But I'm still here. I've not abandoned you. And so maybe we can suggest two points from this. First, the fact that God loves despite everything he's been put through is hope for those going through the motions and those who are tempted to take that route. We often judge God by where we're at and up rather than where we're at and down. Here's what I mean by that. We, we look at the place where we live, and we think, well, it could be nicer. We look at our job, and we think, well, it could be more rewarding. We look at our finances, and we think they, they could be more robust. We don't tend to look the other way, though, do we? There are undoubtedly people living in worse conditions than me, or who've been living there for longer. There are definitely worse jobs they could have and more unappreciative bosses. My finances could be in a lot worse shape than they are. See, everything we have, however small, is a gift of God. 
And it's evidence that God still loves us. It's hope, even in our darkest moments, that he hasn't completely abandoned us. When he completely abandons us, we're destroyed. On the other hand, a second takeaway, perhaps, from this is that there is an Edom. There is a nation that God will destroy. And perhaps these people, these Israelites, maybe we need to ask, do I really want to be Israel or do I want to be Edom? See, maybe the Israelites, some of them fancied themselves the people who didn't know God, who didn't have anything to do with God, who were ignorant of all of God's ways. And in this sense, the Q&A could be a little bit of a warning. Are you Israel or are you Edom? Are you God's people or are you not? You wear the badge of God's people, but maybe you're not. The second Q&A focuses squarely on the priests, the religious leaders of the community. And it begins a, a, a little bit of a progression that kind of gradually moves from the religious leaders to the people. The, the general population. And God accuses the priests of dishonoring him and despising his name. How? By offering just any sacrifice at the altar in the Jerusalem temple. Now that might sound weird at first, but if you know the Old Testament law, you know that the priests, well, you know that the sacrifices could not just be willy-nilly picked out. Animal sacrifices in particular had to be a decent animal. No defects, no blemishes. You know, think about it this way. Did you ever do one of those canned food drives at your school or at your church growing up? And, and did you ever dig around, or your parents had you dig around for that one can in the back that's kind of dented? Or you grab the vegetable no one likes and you're not sure why mom bought it in the first place? Or you just want to get it out of the pantry? Yeah, God said the Israelites were not supposed to do that with their sacrifices. And yet that's exactly what they're doing. Animals are expensive. It would have been just easy to grab the sickly one, the one with the deformity, the one you're not going to want to eat or the one you're not going to be able to sell to your neighbor for a very high price. So if I have to sacrifice an animal, take, take Billy. Billy. Billy's sickly. Billy's ugly. No one, no one likes Billy in the barnyard. So take Billy Goat and we'll offer Billy to God. Now, uh, the priests were supposed to inspect the animals that were brought for sacrifice, so they were sort of the stopgap. Sure, it was the people who were bringing the offerings, but the priests are the ones who said, okay, let's slaughter this animal, let's offer it in the temple. So they were the ones who were offering these second-rate offerings. It's so bad that God says he wished that one of them would lock up the temple and stop the sacrifices from happening at all. God would rather have nothing than to have what they were offering. Why? Because God doesn't need animals. God doesn't need our token offerings. He doesn't need our token sacrifices. He doesn't need our good deeds and our religious acts. He wants our hearts. And the carelessness was evidence that their hearts weren't in it. It was, the, the priests say in verse 13, wearisome. It was a wearisome task that God had put on them. They weren't finding joy in serving God. It wasn't their actions 
but their actions evidence the fact that their heart didn't love him. In fact, God says that he is worshipped more honestly and more truly by people outside of Israel. His name will be great among the nations. Many years later, Jesus would say that God is ultimately not looking for sacrifices offered on the right location. Instead, he said true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He wants the heart. And the priests had substituted an empty formalism for the true religion. They were going through the motions, and God was not interested. Which leads to the next back and forth in the, in the third Q&A, uh, which starts at the beginning of chapter 2. Although, this one isn't really as back and forth. This is the one that kind of breaks the pattern a little bit. But at this time, God was rather direct with the priests. He threatens them that their blessings could turn into curses if they don't change directions. And in fact, he reminds them they already have. Remember, things are not going well, guys. You've said so yourself. You're going through tough times. And that is an indication that you are, in fact, cursed. And so finally, gets, God gets to the charge in, in chapter 2, verse 8. And he, and he says, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. See, the, the priests had not fulfilled their responsibility to teach God's people God's ways so that they could live in peace and righteousness. Now, we can see that implicitly in their subpar offerings. By implication, by accepting those offerings and putting them on the altar, they are silently, without words, teaching the people that this is an anything-goes sort of God. A God with low demands, a God who wasn't special, a God who wasn't holy. But it seems like they're doing a little bit more than that. It, in a pre-literate Israel, and in the days before a printing press, the people were supposed to hear God's word from the priests. The priests were supposed to read God's law to them annually. And the Levites, the family of the priests, were scattered in the towns across the land to teach people and to instruct people on God's law. God had revealed himself in his word. And by teaching the word, they would lead the people to obey God and to live righteous lives. But if they weren't teaching God's word, then what were they teaching? Ultimately, it could have only been their own opinions, their own impressions, little bits and pieces and specks that they had heard about God along the way, or perhaps little bits that they picked up from other religions that they heard from travelers from Moab or Edom or Ammon. But if God is holy, and if God has revealed himself, then it's the responsibility of the religious leaders to teach accurately from what God has revealed from his word Instead, the people will do either what the priests think is right or they'll invent their own right and wrong because none of us can live without some sense of right and wrong. And that leads directly into the next several Q&As. If the priests have been letting the people get away with these bad sacrifices and the priests have been failing to teach the people correctly, 
what do you think the people are doing? And that's how God moves in these interrogations. In the fourth Q&A, there's, there's two charges brought against God's people. And this is in chapter 2, uh, verses 10 through 16. And both of these charges are on the question of marriage. On one hand, God says that many of the Jewish men had married the daughter of a foreign god. And what that means, essentially, is that they married women who did not worship the same god. They were supposed to worship Yahweh, and they were worshiping, uh, these women were probably worshipers of, of Molech, or Baal, or Asherah, uh, or any other of a number of deities of the nations around them. This had been warned about throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The Israelites were supposed to be wholly devoted to Yahweh, the Lord. If they married men or women who worshipped other gods, they would be naturally drawn to worshiping those gods. That's not rocket science. Those of you who've lived a few years uh, know that people often convert in order to get married because they want to marry somebody who's of a different faith background than them and they need to do that to please the person and please that person's family. But if you believe that everything belongs to the Lord, and that you should do everything for the Lord. But you're bound to a spouse who disagrees with that. How do you work that out? You either have to compromise with your spouse. Or you have to compromise with God. You either have to have a level of disunity with your spouse. Over what's most fundamental. Or you have to have disunity with God. Neither one of those is a great situation. And God does not accept compromise. The New Testament teaches the same principle that Christians ought to marry Christians. It only makes sense. You know, the reasons for marriage have been the same throughout the ages. We think somehow that we're more enlightened than past generations, but we're not. People married for looks, for sex appeal, for an emotional connection, for convenience because you're getting old, because you want to solidify treaties between families, you want to increase wealth, you want to increase status. All the reasons that people get married today are all the reasons people got married back then. And they're all worldly reasons. None of those things I threw out there are, are, are things that you can count on. And there's certainly things that won't endure past the end of this life. But the primary reason that God designed marriage, and God did design marriage, was to glorify God. So for the unmarried, let me challenge you that if you're so-called, find a husband or a wife that will help you glorify God. Forget everything else. Everything else waxes and wanes. Everything else is unpredictable. Everything else is shifting. But the glory of God is forever. And for the married, commit your marriage to the Lord. Let that be the, the centerpiece of what your marriage is about. And if you find yourself, unfortunately, as the Bible says, unequally yoked, if you find yourself in a marriage where, where you are 
following Jesus and he is your life and he is your center point and your spouse does not We'll give you this whole another sermon and I can't delve into it, but let me give you two encouragements. One, if they're willing to live with you, this is this is what Paul admonishes. If they're willing to live with you, love them and stay with them. Okay? That you you can't control them, but you can control you. And that goes that feeds into this next point that we'll talk about here, but you, you don't give up on your marriage because they give up on Jesus or don't care about Jesus. That being said, your first priority has to be to Jesus. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to be difficult. Plug into your local church. Let the women or the men, depending on your gender, build into you. Share this difficulty with them. Ask for their prayers. Let them come around you and surround you. And love your spouse the best you're able to under Jesus. Jesus first, and then your husband or wife. And let your love and your devotion to Jesus be the motivation that maybe, just maybe, brings them to the king. Now, of course, this problem that the Israelites were having could have easily been avoided if the priests had been teaching them people, but they hadn't been. The second issue, though, also concerns marriage. They were being faithless to the wife of their youth. That means to their first wife, the Israelites would have married rather young, at least younger on average than we do. And so the wife of your youth would be your first wife. And in one of the most powerful teachings on marriage in the entire Bible, Mike Malachi says that God made the husband and wife spiritually one. And part of the goal of these marriages was to produce offspring who would likewise worship God. But these men were divorcing their wives, and that dishonors God. Look, what God, look at what God says in verse 16 of chapter 2. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Other translations are more direct, and it's hard to choose. This is actually a tough verse to translate, but here's another compelling translation. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Either way, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? To be sure, the Old Testament and the New Testament, both, they arguably carve out some very narrow grounds for divorce. And the short version of it is this unfaithfulness in the marriage. If a person is unfaithful in the marriage, there may, may be grounds to end the marriage. That's a whole another teaching. But in the case of Malachi, the case that Malachi is talking about, they are being unfaithful by divorcing their spouses. They don't have a grounds for the divorce. It's not like their wives went off and cheated on them and so they're divorcing them. They are just divorcing them and so they are the ones who are acting unfaithfully. From the beginning in Genesis 2, which the Israelites would know if the priests had been teaching them, God designed marriage to be an enduring covenant between one man and one woman. The men here apparently thought they could trade up. They could divorce this wife and maybe find a better one. But you know what? When I displeased Jesus, he didn't drop me and look for another soul to save. No, as Paul taught Timothy, 
If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Jesus didn't drop me, so I cannot drop my wife. But God's people, bigger point here, God's people were supposed to have transformed relationships. And their most important relationship, their closest human relationship, the relationship with their spouse was certainly included in that. Now, that dispute that God has with people arguably deals with people's ethics, how they behave. But in the next uh, Q&A, it centers around what people think about God. It's a little bit more about their beliefs and their feelings about God than in how they act. And it's a section that stretches from uh, chapter 2, verse 17 through 3, 5 or 3, 6, depending on the, what scholar you listen to. And that's weird because it breaks through a chapter. But remember, God didn't write the little chapter in verse numbers. Malachi wasn't sitting there prophesying to God and said, like, uh, to his scribe, eight, stop there, put two, okay, three, then I'll keep going. The, we put those in just a couple hundred years ago to help make it easier for people to find things in the Bible. Um, sometimes we put them in weird places. So that, that just happens. Um, now, if we change it, then one person's Bible numbers will be different than another's, and it's just confusing. So anyhow, it breaks a chapter. It's awkward, but deal. Um, look at the charges, though, that God is accusing the people of in their hearts in verse 17. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, by asking, where is the God of justice? There's two accusations here. Uh, the first idea, that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, is, is probably not what they would actually say. God's calling them out. He knows what's in their heart. That it's effectively what they're saying. It's this attitude well, he's a good person. Well, she's a well-meaning person at heart. In the face of all the awful things that person is doing. Today, we, we associate this with sort of a theologically liberal sentiment. The idea that, you know, God may prefer that we behave this way, or God may prefer that we behave that way. But God loves everyone, and he loves you, and everything will be well for you whether you choose his love or not. The problem is the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does teach that God has moral standards, and that when we violate those moral standards, he is not just displeased, he is furious. That doesn't negate his love. Does God love? Absolutely. But his love does not negate his anger. He's much better than we are. We throw our love away in our anger. And in our love, we throw away our anger that rightfully should be held. God is much better than us. God loves everyone. But he doesn't love every single person in exactly quite the same way. And God's love cannot be reduced to a one-dimensional, sappy, all-accepting, warm and fuzzy tolerance. Let's be honest, that's not how your love operates. And it's surely not how God's love operates. 
God is not just okay with our wickedness. He can't simply overlook our wickedness. He would be unjust if he just overlooked our wickedness. Which brings up the second concern. Where is the God of justice? So one camp is attributing wickedness of the world as a byproduct of God's general pleasure with human beings. God's not that mad at us. Or maybe he's not mad at all. But this attitude chalks it up to a God who's either uninterested or non-existent. It's the God of deism. It's the God of agnosticism. It's the God of atheism. God either doesn't exist or he doesn't care to do anything. But God has an answer for both. He is coming in judgment. It will happen. And in words that were memorialized in Handel's Messiah, God says, for he is like a refiner's fire. He will burn away all the impurities, the the evil, the wickedness, the injustice, so as to leave only the precious metal behind. And God's judgment is thorough. He says in chapter 3, verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. There's a sermon there to deal with all those categories. We can't do it this morning. But in short, God will judge both the heretic and the moral heretics, the people who think wrongly about God and the people who claim to think rightly about God but act wrongly in his name. That's moral heresy. He'll judge those whose spiritual devotion is offensive to him and he'll judge those whose actions and ethics are offensive to him. He'll judge those who fail to love him and he'll judge those who failed to love their neighbor. And so... Those who say that God's love is so big that everyone's accepted in his sight will be sorely mistaken. And those who think that God is disinterested or remote or not even alive will be sorely mistaken. God's response to the people is that he will judge. And we, we sense a seriousness of where these Q&As are going the sixth, in, 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 in uh, chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, is probably the most famous part of the book of Malachi, I think, for unfortunate reasons, uh, despite Handel's best efforts. Um, and the reason why this passage is so well known is because it's a favorite text for preachers so that they can preach to you about how you should be tithing. And God charges the people, people with robbing him by not tithing. I really want to preach a whole sermon here. Um, we don't teach tithing at this church. I mean, you're free to believe in tithing. You're free to accept that. You're, you're free to tithe. We don't, it's not an article of faith here. But I don't teach tithing. Zach doesn't teach tithing. Brian's on sabbatical, but Brian doesn't teach tithing. We teach radical generosity. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament, Israelites were required to tithe. Tithe means 10th, 10%. So they gave 10%. What most people don't tell you or they don't know is, is that there was more than one tithe in the Old Testament. 
In fact, there was, the giving that the Israelites did was somewhere between 17 and 24% of their income. Just depending on how you count, depending on how you interpret the different tithes, there, just, there wasn't one tithe. There were two or three tithes, and however often you gave them, it was closer to 17 to 24%. And the short answer why we don't teach tithing is that we believe that Jesus fulfilled the law. That's number one. And two, we believe that the purpose of the tithe doesn't really exist in the New Testament era. Um, but you're free to tithe or not tithe here. Uh, but I think there's a higher principle taught in Scripture, which is radical generosity. But that said, the Israelites were required to tithe, and those tithes did do several things. Um, they maintained the religious service of the temple. Okay? And, I, and I do think that the Christians have an obligation to maintain the, uh, the gospel work of their local church. No, no doubt. I just don't think those are identical things, but that's another sermon. Um, but there's a parallel. Uh, they, some of those tithes prov provided for celebrating the Lord's work, even you, the giver, the tither, spending some of your money to celebrate God. There's probably value in that. I don't know if you spend 10% of your money on that, but if you're going to be a stickler, be a stickler. And uh, the, the, the other tithe also provided for the poor and the marginalized in society. So if the people weren't tithing under that system, then their hearts clearly weren't right with God. They either didn't love him or they didn't love their neighbor because they weren't taking care of the poor, they weren't taking care of the widow, they weren't carried, uh, uh, taking care of the, uh, the aliens crossing their border, uh, they weren't taking care of those who were in a position of weakness, they weren't providing for the religious devotion of Israel to continue, uh, they weren't celebrating God in their hearts. Now, maybe they didn't tithe because their economic conditions were tough. If there's, you know, if there's barely enough wheat in the field to eat, then giving 10% seems daunting. You know, 10% of the minimum wage in Ohio is $290 per week, which would, uh, or the minimum wage would be $290 a week, and that would leave you with just $261 to pay your bills. 10% of $290 feels like a big burden if you're on the edge. 10% of $2,000 a week leaves you with $1,800 to pay your bills, so... You know, we understand that having less, even going by percentages, can make things difficult. And maybe that's part of the reason why these guys aren't tithe, or at least they're justifying their lack of a tithe. But in the Israelites' case, in their case, God had caused a lack because of their wickedness and unfaithfulness. So to stubbornly do what's right in the face of judgment is the worst thing they could possibly do. It was like a death spiral of unfaithfulness, which led to God's judgment and their lack, which led to more unfaithfulness, which led them to more lack. And so instead, God promises that if they repent and give what is required, he'll bless them. He'll remove the curse. He'll remove the curse. So this text does not teach that if you give, you will get it does teach that if God has cursed you for your unfaithfulness and you repent and start being faithful again, God will remove his curse. There's truth to that. You can, you can extrapolate that. But here's, here's the bigger point. The people are unfaithful in their most intimate interpersonal relationships. And they're unfaithful in their religious devotion to God. And they're unfaithful in what they think God is like. 
And that leads to the final Q&A. That goes from uh, chapter 3, verse 13, down to chapter 4, verse 6. Again, splitting a chapter. God says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This final charge is the people believe it's not even worth their time to serve God. They've gone from just putting in their motions to saying that not even that is worth their time. They said there's no benefit to serving God. The wicked prosper. God doesn't care. What good is there for me to serve God? Maybe you've heard that objection from people. Maybe you've felt that objection in your heart. What benefit is there to me of serving God? In fact, there's a lot more options on the table for me if I don't serve God. A lot more options on the table. Here's the scary thing. God doesn't respond this time. God has no response for them. He has no retort for them. It reminds me a bit of during the story of Job. And Job um, complained bitterly about his situation and complained about his friends who were giving them giving him horrible counsel and advice. And in the end, God speaks to Job and reveals himself to Job. And he criticizes his friends. There was one young punk who talked to Job at the end who thought he had everything figured out. And, and there's this progression. God dealt with Job directly. He talked with Job directly. He rebuked those first friends and he told Job to pray for them so that he didn't kill them and that other young punk just got radio silence God said nothing to him and said nothing about him and I think that that is the scariest place to find yourself is not even being worth mentioned by God instead the attention shifts to a group of faithful individuals. A small group among the masses who rejects this narrative. It says that they feared the Lord, which we know means that they had a reverent obedience toward God. And it says that God will remember them. They'll know. They'll know that, that they will be a God's treasured possession, he says. So much for there being no benefit to serving God. God promises a day when the world will see him clearly. And we will know clearly if we are faithful to him. That we are his treasured possession. And God once again reiterates that he will judge. He will make an absolute distinction between the righteous and the wicked. So that nobody can mistake that difference. Among the wicked he says... The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, they have no foundation, they have no future. They're wiped out. 
but of the righteous, he says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So much for the wicked escaping. That poetic line, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings, the one that we've also immortalized in that great Christmas carol. Hark the herald angels sing. As we understood the son of righteousness, not S-O-N, but S-U-N, the son of righteousness, the dawn, the light, the brightness of righteousness, who is Jesus Christ. He rises with healing in his wings. It can be easy to go through the motions. Sometimes things seem dark. They seem dreary. Maybe that's easy, especially when we're in a pandemic and we're closing our doors and we're throwing masks on. Things get hard. And, you know, wasn't life supposed to be good? Wasn't life supposed to be easy if we followed Jesus? And, and yet everywhere around us, things are difficult and they're hard. And maybe we're just tempted to go through the motions. And I'm, I'm doing this because I'm supposed to be doing this. And then that just doesn't seem like a good motivation anymore. And we're tempted to check out. God says, don't do it. He says, he says, those who remain faithful, those who wait through this difficult age, will be rewarded. Because though we're imperfect and though we're broken and though we're fallen, there is a son of righteousness, Jesus Christ, who takes our pain and burdens on us. He has promised to put his righteousness on us who are faithful to him. He has promised to take this broken and fallen and dark and dreary world and recreate it and make it right. And make it whole. And those who know him and follow him will enjoy it and enjoy him forever. But waiting can be hard. And he gives these two, these two closing encouragements to those faithful who are waiting on him. First, he says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Christians, we are not under the law anymore. Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has completed it. But here's the implication of what Malachi is saying, or what the Lord is saying through Malachi. Your righteousness is not in vain. Your doing good is not in vain. Your heartfelt devotion to me, I want your hearts, God says, but your heartfelt devotion to me is not in vain. Persevere. Persevere even through the darkest days. And then he holds out this promise. He says, behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The great and awesome day of the Lord is the day when God comes to judge in perfect and righteous truth. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
He promises that there will be a revival. There will be a turning of hearts. Reorientation of hearts to be the way they're supposed to be. Now, there's debate, you know, was, was Malachi preaching in the early 500s or was he maybe even preaching as late as the uh, early 300s B.C.? But you know what? This happened. This happened. God sent Elijah. We're taught in the New Testament that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah and preached a message of repentance and people believed him and their hearts were turned back to God before the coming of the Lord. Jesus, he's come. If you will, the day of the Lord is here, that we are in the day of the Lord. It has been inaugurated and it has not yet been completed. And it will be completed when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead. But it has begun. The hearts are already being turned back to him. And so what was a promise of future hope for them is a promise of what God has already done that we can look back on. He sent John. And Jesus has come. And we know that he will complete the work that he promised to do. Let's hold fast to that, even when it's gloomy outside. Let's pray. Father God, we are tempted in these days to declare it all worthless, to declare it all a waste of our time, yet you remind us that there is hope in righteousness. There is hope in Jesus. Steal our hearts that we do not give up the fight, but persevere to the end. And would any of those, God, who have been tempted to take that tack, to tempted to walk away from you, maybe perhaps they have walked away from you, find now that they can yet turn In Christ's name we pray, amen.